All right, Exodus chapter 17, and I'll go ahead and tell you, let you in on a secret. I texted Rick this afternoon, and I said, can we sing Victory in Jesus right before the sermon? Because I don't know if you know that, which it ties into the sermon is why I asked him to do that, but another, just a little side note, most of you know, if you've been around very long, is that that's the best song that was ever written. Uh, you know, in my opinion, that's the number one song, you know? And so I don't think there's ever been a song better. You say, well, Amazing Grace. No, I think Victory in Jesus is still the best song. I remember I wasn't much older than Truett, and uh, we lived in El Dorado. Of course, we lived in El Dorado until I finished the seventh grade, and then we had moved to Louisville. And uh, we attended Emmanuel Baptist Church in El Dorado, and my, my mom sang in the choir, and, and uh, the choir stayed in the loft, you know, and, and it was the three of us kids, and we sat right, we had to sit right down close to the front where she could see us from the choir loft during the service, you know, and every once in a while we'd get that look, you know, the look. I remember one Sunday we sang Victory in Jesus, and one of the men in the choir, he came down, and he came to me, I remember it, he said, you never looked at a book or anything. You knew every word to that song. Yeah, it's a good song, you know? I mean, Victory in Jesus has always been my favorite song, and why not? It is natural to enjoy a victory, right? We all like to win. We all like victories. I don't know of anybody, I haven't met anybody who has admitted the fact that they like losing if Jared was here, I'd say something about except Cowboy fans, but he's not here, and so we'll move on. But I've never met anybody who's admitted to enjoying losing. I think there might even be a psychological disorder. I don't know, but, you know, who enjoys losing? I don't know. But here's the thing about victories. If you find victory, if you experience victory, it's because you've been in a battle. That's the only way you find victory. You do not find victory unless you first experience a battle. And as you've come to discover, as we've seen, as we've walked through these names of God over the last several weeks, these names of God, these character traits of God are most often revealed through a time of personal struggle or during some national dilemma or some national crisis for the nation of Israel. And the situation is no different tonight in Exodus chapter 17. As a matter of fact, it's been one struggle after another, if you follow the story of the Israelites, through their time of leaving Egypt. It's at least been a struggle in their mind. Because as you read the story from when they left Egypt until we get to our story in Exodus 17, there's one thing that's kind of remained the same, and that is we find over and over that the children of Israel complained. They complained, and they complained a lot. But every time they find themselves in one of these struggles, we then find, following it up, that God delivers them again. They find victory through Jehovah. The story's no different this time. We'll read in Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. Now, now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur 
went up to the top of the hill. And so it was, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nissi. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, and the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for allowing me to be here to preach your word. Father, thank you uh, that you give us this opportunity to come together to study your word. Father, this morning we recognized our veterans, and I thank you for them and the, the the fact that they fought so that we could have this freedom, that we could continue to enjoy the ability to come together to study your word and to worship you. And I thank you for the victory we experience in Jesus. And I pray that you would show us more about you as we look into your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. In the chapter and the verses prior to this, of course, God was constantly having to deal with Israel's complaints, as we said a little bit ago. They, they like to complain about, now just see if you've ever experienced this with maybe your children. I'm hungry. I think I'm going to die of hunger. I'm thirsty. I'm going to die of thirst. They constantly were complaining about things like hunger and thirst, but what they're about to find out is there's a lot of worse things than being hungry. And there's things worse than being thirsty. As a matter of fact, they're about to encounter, they encounter here in our text, the very first human enemy that they encounter after leaving Egypt. And that's the Amalekites. Now here's the deal. This story is probably more familiar to you and I than we let on. Because these are kinfolk. Now, I would ask you if you had any trouble making kinfolk, but I'm afraid you'd start calling names or something, okay? You would just say, everybody's got them in their family, right? These are kinfolk. Amalek, the the, uh, forefather of the Amalekites, here in our text, it just says they're fighting Amalek. They're really uh, fighting his descendants, the people of Amalek, the Amalekites. Amalek is the grandson of Esau. Now, you remember that Jacob deceived Isaac, his father, and stole the blessing intended for his brother Esau. And so, as our brother Eric preached on this a while back in his study on the the children's Bible stories, you know, this sin didn't just affect the here and now for Jacob and Esau. It continued to affect generation after generation. If you were paying attention this morning, who came up in that story? The Amalekites, still plaguing the, the, the Jewish people 
the people of God all the way into the reign of Saul. And then again into the reign of David, if you continue to read the story. They are eventually obliterated. But the Amalekites prove to be a nagging enemy over generations to the people of Israel. As we read in verse 14, though, the battle was over. We're going to go back to it in a minute. We get some more information because it says in verse 14, The Lord said to Moses, Write for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua. God told Moses, write down what happened in the book. What book? Deuteronomy. So, if you want some more information on this, and we do, we turn over just a little ways to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25, Moses wrote down a few more details about what happened in this battle, because we just find out in Exodus 17 that the, the, the Amalekites came and fought with Israel. We don't get any other information, but in, we do in Deuteronomy chapter 25, where Moses wrote it down. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17. Moses writes, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So how did they attack? He says, you were all tired and weary. That's when the enemy attacked you. That's when Amalek attacked you. You were all tired and weary from your journey. But even worse, where did he attack? He attacked the rear. He didn't come at you from the front. He snuck up on you from behind. And he says he got those who were in the rear. He got the stragglers. Now who are the stragglers going to be? going to be the weaker ones. It's going to be probably some of the older people. It's going to be the, the women and children. It's going to be those who are the most vulnerable. And they did it all for one reason, according to Deuteronomy chapter 25. The Amalekites attacked because they did not fear God. They had no respect for who God is or what he could do. So the, the Amalekites attacked Israel, and they were about to find out that a failure to fear God is a mistake. So we look at our text, and we find, first of all, this was a two-front war. You say, well, I thought they just attacked them from the rear. Well, I'm not talking about the Amalekites. I'm talking about the way God instructed them to handle this, the way Moses tells Joshua they're going to handle this. Joshua and the army of Israel are going to go down in the valley. They're going to, go down, they're going to meet the enemy where they are. From a human perspective, that's the only place the battle was. That's where the war was happening, where the enemy was. But the text tells us Moses went to battle too in a different location. Look at verse 9. 
in Exodus chapter 17. Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men to go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. You know the story. You remember this. Moses raised his hands, they're winning. Moses lets down his hands, they're losing. You say, well, that seems pretty straightforward, but why in the world is he raising his hands? Well, a common posture in prayer for the Jewish people, one of many postures, was the hands lifted. What's Moses doing while he's on the mountain raising his hands? He's crying out to God. He is interceding to the Father on behalf of the children of Israel. Moses is on the mountaintop praying with hands lifted high. And you say, well, that's not a very Baptist thing to do. Well, why not? Why don't we? You know, why not? He says he had his hands lifted high. I think it's important for us to catch this principle here. Praying is important during our time of difficulty. But when we look at the whole picture, God didn't expect them to just sit around and pray about their problem. God said, Moses is going to go up and pray about it. Y'all are going to go down and fight about it. Y'all are going to go down and handle the situation while Moses is praying for God to intercede and to help you. God doesn't just want us to sit around and do nothing while we ask him to fix our problems. It's kind of like, you know, you hear of the guy who says, you say, well, why aren't you working? Why aren't you providing for your family? Why, Why don't you get a job? Well, I've been praying about that. I've been praying, Lord, send me a job. And, you know, the Lord just hadn't sent me a job. And then you find out he hadn't applied for any either, right? Like a job's just going to fall in his lap. God expects us to do our part while we ask him to do his part. Joshua, I mean, while Joshua was on the battlefield, and just like that, God expects us to use the skills he's given us to work through the problems of life while we depend on him to do what he can do. It was a two-front war, physical on the battlefield, spiritual on the mountaintop. But there's so much more to this story. It was important that Moses was praying. It was important that Moses was interceding on behalf of the army of Israel. But what was more important was what was in his hand. As we look at the story, it says his hands were lifted up, but what did he say he was taking with him? What did he say would be in his hand? He said he's going to take the rod of God there in verse 9. He's going to take the rod of God. What is this rod? It's a shepherd's staff. Now, at its most basic, you look at it, it's a shepherd's staff, but it's not just any old shepherd's staff either. Because as we look through the scriptures, we look through the history and the chapters that precede this. This was the staff that Moses had when God said, hey, you're going to go to Egypt. And you're going to go to the children of Israel. And you're going to go to Pharaoh. And he said, but wait, why are they going to believe me? And God said, throw that stick down on the ground. And he threw it on the ground. It turned into a snake. And then it's like somewhere I think I might have drawn a line with God because God said, reach down and pick it up. And Moses did, and it turned back into a stick. 
That's the rod. It's the same rod that Moses held high above the Red Sea and the waters parted. It's the same rod that just here in the same chapter, chapter 17, the beginning verses of chapter 17, it's the same rod that Moses used to strike the rock when they were thirsty and water came out of the rock. This isn't just any old shepherd's stick. This has become the banner for the army of Israel. And you say, what's so important about a banner? What is a banner? We got a star-spangled one right over there, right? That flag represents something, doesn't it? You think about our, our military out on the battlefield. And can you imagine they get tired and weary, don't they? I would assume that. I'd never served in the military, but I just assume that war is tiresome. And you, you think, well, I don't, are we going to have the resources to finish this? Are we going to be able to do this? And then you look over and you see old glory waving. And you think, wait, we're not just doing this under our strength. We're doing this with the entire United States government and the military and everybody else backing us up. It's more than just us out here. We've got warplanes. We've got everything else we need. To the nation of Israel, they see the rod of God, and that's a symbol of his presence and of his power. Just like to our soldiers, that flag is a symbol of the power that's available to them in war. As long as they saw the banner of God, as long as they saw that rod high and lifted up, they were reminded that the presence of God was with them and his power was available to them. That's why it was important that this was a two-front war. But what else do we find as we look through the text as we move towards this new name for God? We find that the warriors got weary. Warfare is tiring, no matter whether it's physical or spiritual. It'd be easy to say, well, Joshua and the army had the hard job. They're going toe-to-toe, sword-to-sword with the, with the Amalekite army. That's got to be the harder of the two jobs. And you say, all Moses had to do was pray. He must have got tired because he's old. Well, no, not according to Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 7. It says that when Moses died, he was just as strong on that day as he was any other time of his life. Moses never diminished in strength because of his age. Warren Wiersbe puts it like this. He says, true intercessory prayer is a demanding activity. True intercessory prayer is a demanding activity. It's not just some passing, Lord, please help them. They need help. It's demanding. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul speaks of Epaphras, who was, listen to this, laboring fervently in prayer. Laboring fervently in prayer. I looked up, said, what, what does that word labor mean? It means to strive to do with intensity and effort. That's what kind of praying we're talking about Moses was doing. He was laboring fervently as he interceded for them. In Romans chapter 15, verse 30, Paul asked the Christians in Rome to, he said, strive together with me in prayer. 
strive together. I think this is a beautiful picture because I said, looked up what does the word strive means? It means to assist in the struggle. Made me think immediately about elementary school. And you said, yeah, it was a struggle for me too. That's not what I'm talking about. I thought about on the playground. We were allowed to do things that I'm told they're not allowed to do anymore on some playgrounds in modern day America, but I guess somebody would get hurt. But I don't know if they do this or not. We used to play tug of war. You know, y'all ever played tug of war? Maybe next Harvest Festival, we need to have a tug of war contest out here. You know, I don't know. Maybe us against the teenagers, coach. I don't know. We'll see what happens. We need Donnie on the team if we're going to win. So, but here's, here's, here's what happens in tug of war. What are you doing? You're striving together with your team to pull the other team across the line or into the mud hole or whatever you got set up. Now, it doesn't work unless everybody is striving together against the enemy. That's intercessory prayer. That's what Paul talked about when he says, strive together with me in prayer. We're all going to pull in one direction in prayer against the enemy. It's not going to be easy because the enemy's pulling back the other way. We got to pull together. Maybe that's why sometimes our prayers are not effective. Maybe because maybe we don't always take prayer as seriously as we ought to. Maybe sometimes we go at our prayers half-hearted. Maybe sometimes we don't labor in prayer like we find in so many places in Scripture. It's the picture we see in Exodus chapter 17. Moses is laboring in prayer as he goes about his warfare on the mountaintop. Moses prayed so hard it wore him out, and somebody might argue, they read verse 12 in chapter 17, and they say, but Moses' hands became heavy. And they say, well, if you held your hands up for hours on end, they'd become heavy too. Well, listen, the only reason he's holding his hands up is because he's praying. Moses was praying so hard it wore him out. In this verse, though, we find a beautiful example that we ought to follow. Verse 12, again, Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him. He sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Why did his hands become steady again? It's because Aaron and Hur came alongside him, striving together in prayer. They came alongside him and held him up. You know, sometimes in life we'll find ourselves in the place where Moses was, fervently praying to God, crying out to God, laboring in prayer, fighting some fierce spiritual battles. But I think more often, if we'll allow ourselves, we can find ourselves like Aaron and her coming along somebody else who's facing a fierce spiritual battle and holding them up and helping strengthen them, praying alongside them. And you say, well, how in the world do you do that? Being here is one of the ways you find that. You know, it's one of the reasons we come to church, isn't it? You know, over in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, you don't have to turn there necessarily if you don't want to. You know the verse. The writer of Hebrews says, let us consider one another 
to, uh, in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Exhorting one another means encouraging one another. That's why we come here, to encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11 says we're to edify or build each other up. That's what Aaron and her were doing to Moses. And that's what we as the church are to do to each other. We're to build each other up. That's why the local church is such a beautiful, beautiful organization. There was a two-front war. There's a weary warrior and there's his faithful friends. And finally, we find this new name for God. I was reading a book this week for one of my classes. And I came across a quote that it was just too good not to share. So I posted it on Facebook. And when I posted it on Facebook that day, I had no clue it was going to work its way into my sermon, right? God knew, but I didn't know that. Here was the quote. Mature spiritual prayers never leave God's sovereignty out of the picture. Let me say it again. Mature spiritual prayers never leave God's sovereignty out of the picture. The battle's over. It's easy to say, well, we won. Let's move on. Moses hasn't forgotten the sovereignty of God. Joshua and the army, along with the help from the intercessory prayers of Moses, have defeated, for the moment, the Amalekites. Time to go relax for a while, you'd think. But that's not what Moses did. He continued to remember the sovereignty of God. He never forgot the fact that as he was praying, God took action and the war was won. The battle was won. So what does he do? He does what we often see in the Old Testament. He builds an altar so that he can worship God for his help. He built an altar so that it would have a, be a place to remind him of what God did for them in that moment and in that place. And he named the place Jehovah Nissi. Or as our English translation has it, the Lord is my banner. You see, he held that rod up, and the army of Israel saw that as their banner. And Moses says, no, that stick doesn't have anything to do with it. It's what's behind the stick. You see, that flag in and of itself can't do anything for the United States military. Nothing at all. But what that flag represents can that rod in and of itself could do nothing for the army of Israel. But what that rod stood for was the kingdom of God. What that rod stood for was the power of God. Life gets absolutely crazy sometimes. You agree with that? We find ourselves in a mess quicker than we could ever imagine. We get so confused about what's going on that we don't even know where to look for help. But in this moment, Moses says, I know where to look for help. I know what banner I'm going to look on for help. Some people, they think they know what their banner is. They say, well, if I had a little more money, money's my banner. If I had a little more money, wouldn't have my problems. Well, you still have your problems. You just have a little more money to go along with it, Right? Some people, you know, alcohol or drugs are their banner to escape from.
from the problems. But at the end of the day, the problem's still there. There are all kinds of banners that we look to. Moses says, I'm going to build an altar. So that the next time something bad happens, I'm going to remember that Jehovah, God, is my banner. He's the one who can get me through. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord, is my banner. One more passage of Scripture, and we're done. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This ties it all up, and it says, well, this is wonderful, Brother Jeremy. This is just wonderful. You know, the Lord's my banner. We look to God to help us. 1 Corinthians 15, to bring a New Testament perspective. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 54 Paul says this, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in what? Victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The absolute worst thing that can happen to you and me if we know Jesus Christ is our Savior. The absolute worst thing that can happen from a human perspective is that we die. Right? A human perspective, I said death, that's the worst thing that can happen. But for a Christian, we say, that's pretty good. Matter of fact, that's the victory. Because this, the, the sting of death is gone. Jesus gives us the victory over death. Jesus Christ for the saved person, for the Christian. Jesus Christ is our Jehovah Nisi. No matter what happens in life, he's taking care of death. Don't you think he can handle anything else that comes our way in life? No matter what happens, we ought to look up at our banner. As one scholar put it, before you give up, you ought to look up. And I think when we do that, we'll sing, oh, victory in Jesus. My Savior forever. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is our Jehovah Nisi. Our victory has already been won. Is there anything before we close? 